This is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame. When it comes to certain types of photography, such as travel or street photography, people are often used as objects, visual elements that help to complete a composition. And while that approach can result in stunning and beautiful imagery, they can often lack any sense of intimacy and humanity. Now, that's not to say that those kinds of images are incapable of expressing those human qualities. It just becomes that much more of a challenge to do so. For photographer and educator Stella Johnson, her photographs are all about intimacy and relationships. She combines the compositional skills of a street photographer with the sensitivity and awareness of a documentary photographer to produce images that leave you feeling as if you are looking at more than just a well-crafted photograph. Her decades-long work documenting families in Greece and Mexico demonstrate her ability to express what it means to be human. A chance encounter that might have resulted in a simple environmental portrait for any other photographer began decades-long relationships that resulted in an amazing body of work. Well, the first time I did it was in 1987. I went to San Bartolo Coyotepec, which happens to be 10 kilometers from where I'm sitting right now. And um, it was a dirt road, and I went down the dirt road, and I saw this woman making her black pottery, and I asked her if I could photograph her in very, very broken Spanish at that point, okay? And she said, okay, and I had SX-70 film, and she had five kids. The youngest was five, and I put the SX-70 camera in his hands and showed him how to take pictures. And I said, after the end of the day, I said, tomorrow and I did this for three weeks and after the end of three weeks we all cried when I left and the following year I returned with five by seven black and white work prints that I gifted to them about I don't know how many 40 or 50 pictures right a lot and um, that thus started this relationship with this family that I've known now for 37 years. And I just went to the wedding of that five-year-old. He is now an emergency room doctor, and he was married last spring. For Stella, it's not just about coming away with some great photographs to pad her portfolio. For Stella, her photography is the means by which she builds and enjoys lifelong relationships that are as valuable to her as her photographs. To me, the relationships are, are so much more important to me than any image I could make. You know, and, and they still are to this day. It's all about the people, and you know, have, and we're all really curious about people in different cultures. And so, you really have to move in. You really do. I mean, it's much more than embedding. I mean, you. I was living in people's homes. You know, and I became a part of their lives. I've been, I'm the godmother to a bunch of children in Mexico. And the Greek culture has the same sort of godparent culture with, you know, which is very strong and very important. So these two cultures that I immersed myself in really mimic each other too, which was kind of interesting for me. But yeah, you hit it. The friendships definitely are far more important to me than the image making. We'll talk to Stella about how her personal projects began and how the camera phone has impacted the way she sees for the better. And I'll share how an unexpected gift from my parents helped to transform my life. Welcome to The Candid Frame. Well, Stella, welcome to The Candid Frame. I am thrilled to be here, and thank you for asking me to join you. I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled to have you. When I, when I saw you do your presentation in Miami at the Miami Street Photography Festival, I was more than impressed. Uh, <laughs> it was just um, your images, the stories behind the images, and then just having a chance to have breakfast with you uh, that morning and just chatting. Uh, you just endeared yourself to me. I knew that I wanted to have another conversation with you because I didn't get a chance to talk to you long enough as far as I'm concerned. So I'm glad that you have accepted my invitation to uh, appear on the show. I am actually very honored to be on your show and you have a huge a list of luminaries. So thank you for asking me. It's wonderful that we have this opportunity to chat. Yeah. I, I wanted to get started 
with the story of you traveling to Greece and that being sort of the beginnings of you wanting to use a camera. Tell us the story about why you took that trip when you were a young woman and what was it about that experience in connection with the camera that was so transformative for you? Oh my God, it was so obvious to me that everybody in that country looked like all my relatives in the U.S., Mm. And so I had a little instamatic, and I, I just ran around like a, a crazy woman. I didn't know what I was doing, but I kept taking pictures of all these people's faces, you know? And it was like, they were my family, even though they weren't my family, and I didn't know them. I didn't speak any Greek. It didn't matter, you know? They were m- my family. So it started then, when I was 17, 18, when I went to the villages where my grandmothers were raised, and what the villages that they fled, they fled hunger and war and they came to the they immigrated to the United States and that so I'm a second generation okay American that was the the me when I went to the villages because I wanted to see what village life was like and how they survived in those villages and then when I saw all of the faces that looked like everybody I knew in the United States who I was related to by blood and then who I wasn't I grew up in a very um, ethno-centered family everybody was Greek No. And they all spoke Greek except to us as kids. We went to kindergarten speaking only English, not Greek. Hmm. Though those pictures, when you came back, what when you looked at those photographs, did that sort of set you off on a journey of being able to do that for a a living? Was that the starting point or? No, no. But. It's, I came back from Greece, and the first photography book I bought was a Greek portfolio by Constantine Mano. It's come out, mm-hmm. and he was living in Boston, but I didn't, okay? So years later, I met him. I took a workshop with him. I met him, and he decided that he would mentor me because he thought I might have some talent. And also, I'm a, according to him, I was a good little Greek girl. So that's how, <laughs> right, that's how that started, okay? Yes, I bought the first book, and that's no. I was in. I was at. Um, I was at Boston University studying general education. Anything, you know, just general mm. studies. And then I quit school because I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I ended up at the San Francisco Art Institute studying photography. And that. And then you know, I, I kept taking workshops and workshops and workshops, which are very valuable, of course, as we both know. Yeah. And then. The workshop that that really put uh, I, then I went to graduate school in journalism at Boston University, so I have a BFA from the San Francisco Art Institute and a BS a MS in journalism from Boston University. And it was there that I started my career making money. I was a commercial photographer for twenty five years. Mm-hmm. And and every winter I fled Boston because, as everybody might know, uh, it's uh, January 23rd. It was zero degrees in Boston yesterday. And so I'm in Oaxaca, Mexico right now. And this is the reason I'm here. And I came to Mexico trying to figure out how my Greek grandmothers grew up in villages without running water and electricity. And I just flipped it to Mexico, which was closer than Greece. <laughs> so Does that make any sense? That makes that makes perfect sense. And I, w- I want to revisit that, but let's talk briefly about your commercial career. Because I think a lot of people, when they think about photography and they think about, oh, I really like enjoying doing this, you know, they think about earning a living from it. Well, and, not anymore. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Excuse me. Let me be very clear. This was in 1987. Mm-hmm. Okay. I did have a commercial career for 25 years, and I made a lot of money up until the Internet. And then everybody wanted the usage rights for the Internet, you know. And But, of course, they said, we're not making any money off the Internet. Right. Okay, you're not. Then digital comes into play, you know. And then all of a sudden, there's still nobody's paying you a living wage. I then was very fortunate to get a, a eight-month a Fulbright core scholarship to come to Mexico to photograph So I left the United States and I left behind all of my contacts for a year. And when I came back, I sort of lost all all of my uh, gigs because they went to other people after a year. Right. And I started teaching. 
So, and yes, but, but so I did have that gig. I, I was a commercial photographer for twenty five years, and I got out right in time because I don't know anybody who's making a you know a living wage right now. The the, the thing you said though about making that that Fulbright you know fellowship yeah. that you got, I mean that that was very pivotal and and timely for you in terms of making the transition from doing the commercial work to doing the more personal you know, documentary work that you do now, but it's, it was more than just maybe just good timing. You had put in some work beforehand because they didn't just go, okay, what commercial art photographer out there can we just give this Fulbright to, right? So tell me about, tell me about the, the work that you were putting in that helped create that opportunity for you. First of all, I went to Mexico every year after, uh, I would fly Christmas day, Okay, there's nobody else in the airports. It's a great time to fly. And after the holidays, there was really no commercial work until mid-end of January. So I took a month off. Okay. A. And B, I did that for 20 years, and I was building a portfolio. And every time I went to New York and showed my portfolio, people wanted to see my personal work, which was my black and white personal work from Mexico. Mm -hmm. And this is how I got hired by the Ford Foundation, Continental Airlines. They all kept sending me back to Mexico and Latin America because I speak that was another key thing for me, okay? So I had all of these uh, balls in the air. And I applied. By the time I got the Fulbright, that was my third application. I applied twice to Africa. I got denied. And when I finally asked the program officer, why am I getting denied all these times? Not that I'm such a great person, but what can I do to improve? She said to me, Stella, we're not giving any Fulbrights to people who are not working in health and AIDS-related work. Mm. She said, you, because I had so much experience in Mexico and I'd been working there for 25 years. I spoke Spanish fluently and I ended up working with an anthropologist for eight uh, months on patrimonio cultural in material, material, which is um, intangible cultural heritage. So tangible cultural heritage would be photographing like the churches and the monasteries. Intangible is the grandmother teaching the granddaughter how to make a tortilla. Mm. without telling her how to do it because the child just watches. And so that's where your moment photography comes in, which is like kind of like the street photography that we talk about doing or the documentary. And that's how that got started. And I taught the young people in the village where I lived how to do digital photography at the same time that I was learning it myself. Oh, just passing it on. That's great. About photography. I'd had 25 years, so... You know, one of the things that really strikes me about your your imagery is how intimate it is. And, you know, you're, you're talking about going to photographing in Mexico, which a lot of people do. But there is a level of intimacy. I want to think of another word other than intimacy, but I, I'm, I'm at a loss as to what that might be. But it, it's an app word. And that doesn't come easy because there are a lot of people who are photojournalists or documentary photographers. They will go into a community. They will make beautiful looking photographs, but they're not as immersive as I think a lot of your pictures are. So how do you create that opportunity for yourself? Well, the first time I did it was in 1987. I went to San Bartolo Coyotepec, which happens to be 10 kilometers from where I'm sitting right now. And it was a dirt road, and I went down the dirt road, and I saw this woman making her black pottery, and I asked her if I could photograph her in very, very broken Spanish at that point, okay? And she said, okay, and I had SX-70 film, and she had five kids. The youngest was five, and I put the SX-70 camera in his hands and showed him how to take pictures. And I said, after the end of the day, I said, tomorrow and I did this for three weeks and after the end of three weeks we all cried when I left and the following year I returned with five by seven black and white work prints that I gifted to them about I don't know how many 40 or 50 pictures right a lot and um, that thus started this relationship with this family that I've known now for 37 years. And I just went to the wedding of that five-year-old. He is now an emergency room doctor. And he was married last spring to another oh, doctor. Oh, wow. Just from a chance encounter. That is amazing. Yes, 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 exactly. And then when I ended up going to Greece, first I went to the um, village where my um, cousins were, born, were living and I met their friends. And then um, I was teaching a workshop for main media in um, Crete, Greece. And there they, um, I, I also hired 
teaching assistants to help me, and they introduced me to the Greek culture. Mm-hmm. Although I'm still an outsider because I've only been there for 10 years. I feel, <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> well, they tell me, even though I'm 100% Greek by blood, mm-hmm. they're like, Stella, you're an outsider, you know? You are an American first. So my, there it is. My mom always always reminds me of that. She says, you're not Dominican, you're right. American. Even though both <laughs> my parents are from there, she doesn't see me as such. So it's just like, I'm not going to argue with my mom. Right? No, don't. <laughs> You'll never win. <laughs> but I, I think that the, the essence of, of what makes you such a, a gifted photographer is that in many ways, you're not making the picture the priority. It's that in some ways, you're making the people the priority. I mean, the, the relationship that you have with them. The photographs are a natural extension of that. Which I think, in in the eyes of a lot of people, they see it as as the reverse. They see people as the subject of their photograph, not necessarily the the people a people that they're necessarily going to be engaged with for any any significant period of time. Yeah, and really, that's you you hit it exactly. I mean, to me, the relationships are so much more important to me than any image I could make. You know, and, and they still are to this day. It's all about the people, and you know, have and we're all really curious about people in different cultures, mm-hmm. and so you really have to move in. You really do. I mean. It's much more than embedding. I mean, you, I was living in people's homes, you know, and I became a part of their lives. I've been, I'm the godmother to a bunch of children in Mexico, and the Greek culture has the same sort of godparent culture, with, you know, which is very strong and very important. So these two cultures that I immersed myself in really mimic each other, too, which was kind of interesting for me. But, yeah, you hit it. The friendships definitely are far more important to me than the image-making. Yeah. Ever will be. The, the magic of some of the shots of yours that I just love is that they are not, they are not pictures of events. They are kind of like the moments in between the events, the, the non moments. And the, the beauty of, of how you, how yes. you photograph them is the fact that, is the way you see them. You see these quote unquote non moments, but you see almost the inherent beauty of what's playing out. And I'm sure that that doesn't sort of come easy because you can learn all about shutter speed and aperture and focal length and all that other stuff. But being able to see the most transitory, ordinary, mundane moments in a way that results in a good photograph, you know, it's hard to teach that. But I'm, I'm curious as to how you learned yourself to see it. You know who taught me how to see? It was Konstantin Manos. He, and he and I have a very different way of doing things. Mm-hmm. He does not talk to his subjects. He, they don't know he's taking a picture. But the way he composes is what I know how to do. Mm-hmm. What I do is I hang around. I have time. I'm not photographing and a lot of time talking and getting to know people. And I miss so many shots you know, you do. Yeah. That's why it takes so long to get it right. Okay. It just takes forever. <laughs> and also there was always the language barrier. Now in Greece, you know, uh, the uh, people over the age of 50 don't speak English. So I had language barriers a lot. Even though I had people helping me, I was often on my own and um, I missed a lot of stuff and I still do. And I always will. But you know what? I always, um, even though I missed it with my camera, it's in your head. Yeah. So you always have it. It's in your heart. But, but I can imagine that, you know, the, you're there as, as a photographer, you know, and you, and you see these moments sort of playing out. And it's like that, that you know, that pull between simply experiencing the moment and being engaged and making the photograph. And I think that so many photographers, you know, prioritize the image above all else. Um, it takes a, a degree of discipline to let those moments go. And to my thinking, it's easier to make that choice if you're lingering in, and you're sticking around because you know that those moments are going to play out again. Maybe not exactly the same characters or, or exactly in the same way, but you know that everything's kind of cyclical. Is that, is, is that the way that you're, you're seeing it that allows you to be able to say, okay, I'll let this moment pass up and, and just wait? Well, I don't let the moment pass up. It just goes, beep, it just <laughs> flies right by me, okay? Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, I do spend so much time. I know it's going to happen again. And then I'm more prepared. You know, so we all learn because, you know, you do beat yourself up. Of course, oh, my God, how could I have missed that? 
Where was I? What was I doing? And, you know, often I'll turn, I have a picture in my first book in um, Nicaragua, um, Nicaragua, and I was photographing, you know, in the sun, and I turned around, I saw a moment, and the, the image is, I didn't have time to um, change my F-stop, and it's, so it's like four stops underexposed. I still mm-hmm. printed it, and it's in the book, and it's there, but, you know, I because I turned around just to see what was behind me, you know, that's always half the battle. Usually, what's happening behind you is more important than what you thought you were shooting for the last 20 seconds, yeah. 20 minutes, not seconds, minutes, you know. Yeah, I always, I, I spend a lot of time, a lot of time, and I return again and again and again. And don't forget, people get very used to me, and then they tell me where to go and what time to be there and when the good light is. Mm-hmm. When they understand what I want or what I might be looking for, what might be happening, you know, then they send me. You know, why don't you try this? Go try that. They're going to pre- be preparing for the wedding. The weddings in both countries are three-day events. Okay, <laughs> both in, I know, right? <laughs> Believe it or not, they are. You know, so it's exhausting and at the same time exhilarating. You know, one of the things about street photography that I often talk about is is the sense of sensing a potential of a of a scene or a moment to play out into something. There's a shot that you showed of, of a courtyard where people were preparing for something, and then these kids started kicking a ball um, in oh, the yeah. courtyard. And I looked at that shot, and I was I just my jaw just dropped to the floor. And it was such a beautiful shot, and there was just such synchronicity with all the different elements there. And I talked to you a little bit about, about it, and I want to kind of revisit it, it here. Specifically with the idea of those, those times when you sense the potential of something playing out and the choices that you make in terms of where you position yourself, the choice of focal length, you know, all those different things. Could you could t- talk a little bit uh, about that? Yeah, the choice of focal length was made for me by Costa Manos years ago. He said, listen, just choose one focal length and, and use a 35 because that's the way your eye sees. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm not shooting in a war zone. I'm not shooting sports per se. That is a sports shot, the one you're referring to. But, you know, I'm not shooting hardcore. Okay, so I only use a 35 millimeter. I only shoot in horizontal because I don't have to make all of these decisions. I had to. I saw 400 and I saw uh, 1600 and that was it. So there weren't that many choices. And I, and I limit myself to those same choices now. So it makes it that much easier. This photograph in question uh, in the courtyard, it was a birthday party for a one-year-old. Well, that's a really boring image. I mean, in and of itself, the parents hold the kid over the um, cake and the kid is crying and there's your picture. Well, I never take those pictures, but I go to the party and everybody is sitting at the table, bored, silly, waiting for their cake. So... I went, and the reason I called my book Al Sol to the sun, I was always looking for the light. And the light was in that part of the courtyard where the kids were playing a pickup soccer game. And yeah, and then where to stand? You know, that was the question. And I wasn't sure if I was. And then the receiver and the kid kicking the ball over and over and over again. And that just didn't happen right away. I mean, it happened mm-hmm. over probably 20 minutes. 30 minutes, those kids don't stop playing. They're young, they're energetic, mm. right? You know? So I was the one who probably quit before they did. <laughs> right? You know? Yeah. <laughs> you know how that is. Yeah. You know, you talk about Constantine, so Constantine uh, teaching you in terms of assembling the elements in, within, within the, in the frame. But that alone doesn't necessarily equate to uh, a great photograph because I've seen images that are really perfectly composed but that's going to leave me feeling empty. So I know that part of part of what makes your images magical is the fact that you've gained the access. You you've created a situation where you have the opportunity to witness it. But you know, when you're looking at what's playing out in front of you, there's so many choices that you can make. You know, what's what's at the heart of the photographs that that you're trying to of the best photographs that you're trying to capture? What is it? You know, what is that secret sauce that you're hoping to see in the photograph beyond the fact that it's beautiful, light, and well-composed? The calites, the heat, the warmth, the love, you know, the that? I don't know. I actually don't know. Hmm. I can't answer that question. 
I just, I put myself in that situation. It makes me feel good. I, and, and I hope that that energy gets translated, you know, it makes me feel like a part of the human race makes me feel human and alive and outside of myself. You know, I'm sharing now moment of life, somebody else's life. They're allowing me in. What a gift. What a gift. You know, I haven't been to um, Oaxaca for the Day of the Dead for about 20 years. The last Day of the Dead I did was during my Fulbright Scholar year. And I went with the family and it was their grave and with their permission, of course, just their grave and their family's grave. So, again, that's the, the permission thing. I mean, I would not run a workshop in Oaxaca for the Day of the Dead. I don't know what to say. You know, I mean, Easter week is different. It's Semana Santa. There are processions on the street. People are expected to be photographed, I think, probably in the graveyards, too, with the, with the candles. Uh, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful thing to see. Mm. And, you know, even if you don't have anyone buried in Mexico yourself, you can grieve your own dead loved ones, you know, there. I mean, it's an amazing part of and the mariachis come and the food is made of the dead loved one it's put on their grave and if they like tequila and a certain brand of cigarette and the mole and the bread and the candles and the yellow flowers it's gorgeous and then the musicians come and you tell stories about your dead loved one it's it's a beautiful thing but you know uh, that's if you know the family and can speak Spanish and understand the whole circumstance. So, uh, yeah, it's, 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 it's a complicated uh, situation, isn't it? Yeah. Over the years, some people have suggested that I might tweak the format of the show in order to grow a bigger audience. They noted that other podcasts and YouTube channels, that when they focus on gear, get significantly greater numbers. And I agreed that if I started focusing more on technique and gear reviews, I probably could get a lot more people to listen. But that's not why I started the show. Even 13 years ago, when podcasting was was still in its infancy, I felt that too much of the discussion revolved around gear and technique, I wanted to create a show that I wanted to hear, which revolved around photographers talking about their work and their careers, and if no one else was doing it, I might as well give it a try. Today, there is no shortage of gear-centric content, much of which has a much larger audience than we have here, but that doesn't matter to me. Because I knew what I wanted the show to be then, And I know what I want it to be now, intimate and in-depth conversations with photographers that allow me to learn something more than what camera they use. And I'm so glad that you believe the same thing and continue to listen to this show after 13 years. And if you believe in us, I hope that you will help us to continue to produce such great content. By becoming a Patreon supporter, and committing to a reoccurring donation of $5 or more a month, you are making a huge difference. We are slowly reaching the goal of 100 new contributors, and your support is essential. Without your help, all this wouldn't be possible. So sign up today by visiting patreon.com forward slash The Candid Frame, or click on the link in the show notes or The Candid Frame website. Thanks. You know, when when you are um, focusing on a subject that you're returning to over and over again, over the course of that that time, which is lengthy for you, there are a lot of pictures that you've may have made before, right? And for me personally, I'm always thinking about what can I do to take it a little further. You know, so I'm not just endlessly repeating myself. How do you sort of? evaluate and reevaluate your own work, especially, you know, with, with the subject matter um, that you're so often re- re- you know, revisiting. Well, you know, I mean, because I was teaching for so long in the university and contemporary photography now uh, does not include a lot of images of people. Okay. So I have started making a lot of images that do not include people also. 
Mm. And they, you know, so the still life sort of trades off of the other imagery. And I agree with you 100%. It's extremely hard not to repeat oneself visually. One of the reasons I went from black and white to color was I knew I always photographed in color for my commercial career, but never as making my personal work. And after I published my book, I also I decided to go to color first to learn digital photography. And secondly, to see if I could see in color, Mm. which is a whole other can of worms. So is the picture about color. Is it about your moment or whatever, you know, whatever you want it to be. So I still think I have real difficulty seeing in color. And I think it's very hard, very hard to make strong images in color. That's so I but I, I I'm also really thinking about going back to black and white. Now that I've published this book about Greece, it's called Zoe and I just it's hot off the presses. And I think that I may start going back to black and white. I don't know. I haven't picked up a camera yet, so we'll see. Well, you, you make an excellent point about white color can become such an issue, especially along the lines of documentary work in, in the fact that an image, when it has very strong saturated colors, that the color itself draws so much attention and the whole shot becomes about the color rather than the other elements of the photograph. Um, when you When you feel like you have succeeded with a color image, what... What do you think allows an image that does may have such punchy, saturated, high contrast colors to still succeed despite the presence of, of the color? Ah, well, you know, then it's the content. And also, you know, when you're when you're doing a body of work, it's like how you sequence the work too that really matters. Mm. The storytelling of it, you know, what goes next to each other and why. You know, some of it could just be lineal, uh, linear, you know, from day to night, or it could be putting two images together that have same tonal quality or same feeling, or they are all at night, so others are in the early morning, a feel, yeah. you know, it, it depends. I think color is very, very hard. <laughs> I'm still stumped by it. I think that's why I want to go back to black and white. <laughs> I mean, people like, you know, Constantine is really adept at using, using color. Yes. And it just, it just, but it seems balanced with all the other things that he's taking into consideration with the photograph. But it, I think it takes, I think to some extent, starting off as a black and white photographer, I think uh, increases the likelihood that you can effectively use color because you've trained yourself to see in terms of light and shadow. And then line and shape and gesture and all those other things. If you've honed your skill in being able to do that, then you can not selectively bring in color, but at least you can be conscious of the presence of color in the frame and how it adds or detracts from what you're trying to do. Yeah, I think that's right. And I also think that not adding too much color. I had a friend who once said to me, color needs a friend. That is a great way. Yeah, that's perfect. Yeah, so if you have a lot of blue and then maybe I have a picture with a lot of blue in it and then a pink plate, I mean, it really sticks out, okay? And so you just, I'm using two colors. That's the way it worked out. So that's something else to consider too, not throwing in the whole rainbow of uh, color. You know, I think it's important. It's very, very hard. I mean, I still... Don't know what I'm doing. And it's hard to resist the temptation of being seduced by color when you're traveling in Latin American countries where saturated, punchy colors are in abundance. They are. And now I live right around the corner from where the quinceañeras are being photographed every week for their, you know, annual picture, you know, and Mm -hmm. um and I see it, and the walls are deep blue, and the girls are wearing red dresses, and I take these pictures with my iPhone, and they're, like, amazing, you know? It's like, well, what am I going to do with that? I don't know. It's a whole other project. And, you know, would they look the same in black and white? Absolutely not. It's about color. You know, these girls have been dreaming about their dress for yeah. 10, 10 years. So tell me about the use of the phone. How has that influenced the way that you, you see and make photographs? Oh, my God. Well, it's the camera I'm always, I've got with me all the time. 
Are you kidding? <laughs> so <laughs> it's fabulous. It's so easy. And when you go to an event and everybody, I was at a quinceanera just two days ago. I, there was a, a, a photographer and myself, the two of us. Everybody else had their iPhones up taking a video of the entire dance mm. of the waltz. When they finally posted the pictures and I had sent them my pictures, the only ones that you could actually read were with a real camera. So, I mean, <laughs> you know, <laughs> there was that issue. The, the video didn't come out that great. But my um, stills in the daylight with the iPhone X, 10, whatever, yeah. they're pretty nice. They're very nice. And I think you can print them up to 14 teen inches, 15 by 15, and you're still okay. I, I was visiting a friend of mine. And he had printed two prints of the same thing. One with an iPhone X, the most recent one. And he had another yep. one that he had taken with his DSLR. And just a, just a cursory glance of both 13 by 19 prints, it was not obvious which of the two cameras had taken the photographs. It was only when I looked at it a little more carefully that I was able to discern it. But it took a little work. Right, yep. and that it just yeah. tells you how amazing it th- th- these cameras are. Yeah, they may not have the versatility and you know, and so on and so forth of a of a quote unquote real camera, but their their ability to produce a, a great picture uh, shouldn't be underestimated. I agree. That's the whole point. And in the hands of somebody who's been holding a camera for forty years, if you know how to use it, I think matters also. Yeah. So, you know, I, I, I love using it and I'm not going to give it up. <laughs> I think part of the appeal with, with, for me, with, with the phone, which I don't, I don't use it often enough because I always forget, oh yeah, that's a camera too. It's the fact that I don't have to think about choices with respect to camera settings. It's all about framing, about what do I want to include? What do I want to exclude? What do I want it to be in juxtaposition, juxtaposition with? Is for you, because you're so adept at doing that with your camera, that I, I, I have no doubt that it comes very naturally to your, to your phone, but has the phone had any, sort of, uh, had any sort of influence in terms of how you use your, your quote-unquote real camera? Oh, hmm. Well, the real camera, I just put on settings anyway. I know what my settings are in the sun, mm-hmm. and that's how I use it usually, or, you know, inside if I have to focus. I mean, you know, usually that's depth of field focusing, F11, F16. I, I have it all set up. I kind of use it. I, kind, I um, use my iPhone now, on, and um, I really love filling the square frame. So that, I think, is a huge, huge difference for me. Going from 35 millimeter horizontal to the square. I love the square. So I don't know. My next project could be square. Let's talk about how you end up finding a home for these pictures. Because you've talked about the books that you've produced, so when you mm-hmm. when you're you know when you're out there making these images, is that um, is that the end game for you, producing a, a book of, of of photographs? Yes, and I'll tell you why. Because I, the first book I made, I I had like seven exhibitions to go with the book, which was great. I printed all of these pictures, and um, and I realized then and there that I don't care that much about exhibiting in a um, gallery space. Mm. The show goes up for one month. Some people might see it. Some people might not. And then it's gone. Okay. With a book, it has an ISBN number. It lives forever and it will outlive me. So this book, I was offered a show at um, like a gallery Boston. Then framing. Now I want to print my pictures anyway. So that's not a problem. They'll pay for the matting and framing. It'll be the kickoff of the book, and that's it. I'm not going to – nobody has offered me another show, but mm-hmm. I don't really care because I don't want one. Um, I don't I don't live in the United States anymore that much, and I don't want to have that issue. I just want to keep making pictures and, you know, making books. I think books are the final uh, product for me uh, right now, and, and it was from before. Now I have more time to work on that and it's a huge process it the detail is ridiculous especially when it comes to just making a selection i mean when you do an exhibit you may have like 24 prints but when you're designing a book 
you know, you're going to be not only dealing with the individual choices of the images, but the relationships to each other on the page, how the entire book flows so that it works as just a, a, a body of work. What's, what's your process for, for being able to, to do that? Do you, do you live with the photographs and the, the layouts for long periods of time before you commit to it? Well, my first book took a year to get the layout, okay? And I put it on the wall with foam core, and my friend Dominic Chavez would come over once a week, and we would work on the layout together. And it came up to 47 pictures because I didn't Mm. want to repeat the visuals. Second book was done at the spur of the moment. Last summer, I just thought, okay, I want to finish this because I want to go on to something else. And the only way for me to put it down, really, the Greek work was to publish a book. So um, I got this great designer called Jesse Holborn in the UK, and he designed my book for me which I think he did a beautiful job. I had it printed in Rhode Island at Meridian Press, one of the better presses in the United States. I did it all in four months. I think that was a little, it was cutting it a little close. (laughs) I forgot how much detail there was to go into this. Mm -hmm. I had a very good uh, Greek-American friend, Maria Marina Hatsopoulos, who wrote the um, intro and she did a brilliant job. And that was it. I made it. It's very simple. It's, for, again, only 47 images. For some reason, it came out like that, you know. So I have one um, copy. And when I go back to the United States in March for the opening, I'll sign the books and, and really kick, the, kick off the, uh, the sale of it. Yeah. So how, so how are you dealing with in terms of, because creating a book is, is not cheap. I mean, there's a lot of effort that goes into it, but... Right. The issues with printing, with distribution, so on and so forth. You know, if a lot of people try to go and, you know, and get a traditional book publisher to put out a book, they're calling on the photographer to procure basically the upfront costs of printing and all that other stuff. Yeah. So in terms of how, what's, what's your mechanism, what's your process for, you know, making the books actually happen? First, for it, so that that really cut into a lot of my cost, and then I was able to sell enough books to just break even. You usually lose money, but because of the grant, I was able to break even. This book, I'm sure, I'm going to lose a lot of money. I had started to, um, I made these um, special edition prints that I was going to sell with the book, but I haven't even started to really promote that yet. And I'm waiting, probably I'll start that in another week. And if they sell, that's great. If they don't, well, then, you know, it is what it is. And yes, I will have lost a lot of money. But again, if I had gone for exhibitions, I would have spent all this money and that I don't value as much as I do having a book. And I really, this, this particular book is a love story to my family and to my roots as a, as, as, as a, as a Greek. Mm-hmm. Really, it really is a love story, kind of, for me. Um, and it was a very important book to make. So I'm really glad that I made it. And I I'm, don't think, I don't know that I'm going to make another book like, quite like this one. You know, yeah. we'll see. You do a, a lot of teaching. It's always interesting in terms of what any photographer who chooses to teach, what they want to impart to their students. Um, mm. Some people are very happy to just basically teach the basics and, and have people sort of learn how to take a better quality picture. But I think from my conversations with you, it seems like you're driven by uh, something else beyond that. What, what is it for you? I was just talking to my other student who I'm mentoring, and I asked him, like, what what do you want to say with your images? Like, what do you want to talk about? You know, for me, I want to talk about culture and family and life, and and I want to document those in-between moments that we live, but we'll even forget Mm -hmm. ourselves, let alone forget to children and grandchildren about those in-between moments, okay? So what's your goal? You know, after you learn the technical stuff and after you learned all this, what do you want to share? What do you want to get out of this? How do you, what do you want to say? You know, and that's the question. And, and you know, it's very difficult because there's so many different ideas going on out in the world. A lot of photography is now being used to um, illustrate other ideas that, about art, 
you know, photography is not the art project. Yeah. I don't know. I, I, um, I feel like have to want to really, it has to be that you really want to get out of bed and put that iPhone or that camera in your hand and go mm-hmm. out and see what you can see. I mean, you know, it's like being a child. I walked out of my house the other day and I saw this light against this tree and I was like, wow, that is so beautiful. And I was on my way to a very important meeting and I stopped with my iPhone. And I took the picture and I love it. I love this picture I took, you know, and that's because I had the iPhone and it was perfect. Mm. You know, and I was really happy that I had that moment with my camera, you know, forever. How how good have you been about photographing your own in-between moments? I mean, we've been talking a lot about you photographing the lives of other people and other communities, but how about your own life? Well, now I'm starting to because I've been on the road now for like two years and my friends are like, well, where do you stay? And what does it look like? And, you know, what's it like doing that? You know, I rented my house and um, I'm uh, like a vagabond. I live out of two mm-hmm. suitcases, <laughs> you know, and, and not a vagabond. But, you know, I mean, I, I live very comfortably, but like they want to know, like, what does it look like? And so I guess maybe I could start doing that, too. I often thought, you know, it was like too much. Of, I didn't want it to be about me, 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 me. But mm-hmm. everything is about us, isn't it? At the end of the day, no matter what you write, no matter what you photograph, it's about you. So then, I mean, I occasionally will take a um, selfie to, to remember. Uh, David Carroll, who I know from um, Facebook, and he now um, publishes books on Peanut Press. He said he got a digital camera so he could do selfies in the bathrooms. And he in, he gave me that idea, and I've been doing selfies in bathroom mirrors ever since. So <laughs> I know. I really love it. Yeah, I, I had a conversation with David Burnett, who I interviewed at, uh, at the end of last year. And we were talking about how little of our own personal lives we had documented over a yeah. lifetime. And that really, you know, put the seed in me. So I have been increasingly, even when I'm walking around the house, it's like the camera is there. And I've created a lot of images around the house when I'm going to the market. I'm, I've always done to some degree that when I went outside of the house. But increasingly, I've been turning it inward. And it's been really interesting in terms of discovering what's quote-unquote photo-worthy, right? Ah, yes. And, yes. and seeing it in, in a way beyond what function that space serves in my life. Which is, you know, and, and, and it was just one of the reasons I wanted to pose the question to you because it seems like you are so observant about those in between moments that, um, how turning the camera a little more inwardly, what that looks like. Well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take that to heart and more inside my own environment and in my life. I mean, I have a very great life right now. I should photograph more of it. You know, I think I will. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Oh, good. I look forward to seeing him. Well, thank you. I, that's a great idea. Listen, this has been a great interview. Oh, I, I thank, thank you. you so much. My pleasure. But I got one more question for you. My last question is a question I ask each guest. I ask them to recommend one other photographer for our listeners to discover and explore. And it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why? Um. Oh, it's not just one. <laughs> I want my I want your viewers to look at a former student of mine by the name of Ieritza Menhivar. We teach together this Oaxaca class for main media workshops, and she is looking at her own life as um, a first generation American. Mm. Yeah, and uh, she was published in the New York Times. And she's director of um, photography in Winchester, Massachusetts. And she's a very gifted photographer. So I would recommend her. And also, I have to say, Joseph Kudelka. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but she's, she's an up-and-coming uh, photographer that I think everybody should have a look at. Well, thank you for that. And thank you for your generosity and, and your time. I so appreciate it. Oh, I so appreciate being asked. Thank you so much.
Now for a segment in the show where I share thoughts, ideas, and memories that may or may not involve photography. We call it The Last Frame. What you're hearing now is the sound of a typewriter. More specifically, it's the staccato of a mustard yellow Sears Electric One electric typewriter. The whir of its electronic motor, the right margin bell, and the metallic slap and heavy thunk of the manual carriage return is the sound of my adolescence. This is the second version of this typewriter that I've owned. The first was given to me as a gift when I was in the sixth grade. One day, my parents called me out into the kitchen where I found this typewriter sitting atop the kitchen table. I never asked my parents for a typewriter. In fact, I was surprised that they thought I needed one at all. But I was still fascinated by the machine, which hummed to life with a flick of a small black toggle switch. The words that appeared on the blank sheets of paper fascinated me, as much as did the slow reveal of a photographic image in a darkroom developing tray. The response of the keys beneath my fingertips and the slap of the hammers against the page were intoxicating. I spent hours at that table teaching myself to type by copying the words off of newspapers, magazines, and bills. I sat there forever, my fingers dancing over those small plastic keys. I think my parents purchased this for me because I was a voracious reader. My face was forever in a book, either borrowed from the local library or ordered at school from the Scholastic Book Club. I preferred the fanciful words I found in a book to the realities of the world that I knew as home in South Los Angeles. Though I don't remember writing anything original on that typewriter, I did fantasize about writing a book one day. I walked along the library stacks, my fingers running along the spines of the books that were shelved in alphabetical order by the author's last name. I searched for the spaces where my imagined books would one day be nestled in. When my brothers would be out Playing with the neighborhood kids, I would be in front of my typewriter, copying the words of whatever book I was reading. With each completed page, I imagined that this was how the writer had first seen the story I'd been reading. I felt a connection to that person that went well beyond their name being printed on the book cover. I became so adept at typing that by high school, my typing teacher, Mr. Badekin, had me repeat the typing exercises twice, sometimes three times. I loved sitting there, feeling the stiff pressure of the keys and the thunk, thunk, thunk of an Olympia manual typewriter. It was a meditative practice, well before I understood what that was. When I joined the college newspaper at City College, I finally had the chance to apply my love of photography and putting words on a page. I found a place where I could combine both of my passions and be recognized for them. I was finally good at something, and the resulting sense of confidence was unlike anything I'd known before. I found self-worth after years of feeling a perpetual sense of loneliness, anxiety, and shame. I was so desperate to be acknowledged and liked that I constantly sought ways to become the kind of person that others wanted to be around. But just being myself wasn't an option that I considered, especially since I never gave myself permission to be that vulnerable. I found comfort in words, but only in words that appeared as black ink on white paper. Other words, spoken words, were more awkward, more perilous. My stutter was a perpetual worry, made all the worse by my fear of giving the wrong answer or saying something that would subject me to humiliation. It was easier to keep quiet and assume invisibility. I didn't want to be invisible to my parents. If anything, I was desperate for their love and approval. Yet my parents, especially my father, were not generous with declarations of love and affection. For most of my youth, I remember feeling 
the tangible pain of not hearing my father say, I love you. It wasn't until high school when I began telling my father that I loved him, even though it wasn't reciprocated. For whatever reason, I made it my mission to tell my dad I loved him, regardless of whether or not he said it in return. That went on for months, until one day, while he was working in the yard, I was walking back into the house when I turned to him and I said, I love you, Dad. Without raising his head from whatever he was doing, he said, I love you too, but I wish you boys didn't give me so much trouble. There are no words to express what I felt in that moment. Even though he had qualified it, my father had told me he loved me, and it meant everything to me. As an adult, I often lamented that I didn't grow up in a family that was more demonstrably affectionate. We didn't sit on the couch or at the dining room table talking about our feelings, especially of fear, insecurity, and vulnerability. I used that regret as a filter for how I remembered my past, often in unfavorable ways. When I think of the upbringing that my father had, it's no surprise that those words of affection didn't come easily for him. My grandfather was a mean drunk who was quicker with a slap or a punch than he ever was with a warm embrace. Till the day my grandfather died, my father was forever in pursuit of approval he never would receive. So I shouldn't have been surprised that my father didn't express himself so readily in my youth. Thankfully, that changed as we both grew older and each of us became more willing to see and accept each other as we were. But what my parents were unable to do verbally, they did so in so many other ways, including supporting my passions and interests. They purchased hundreds of books for me, sometimes reluctantly. They paid for the processing and printing of rolls of color film that I put through my little plastic camera. They bought me a typewriter and met a need and desire I didn't even know I had. They demonstrated their love and their beliefs in me with the gift of that typewriter. They gave me a machine upon which I could create words and not just consume them. With it, I eventually expressed and defined myself in ways they likely could never have imagined for themselves. And for that, I am forever grateful. And that's the last frame. Thanks to Stella for sharing her time and her story with us. You can find out more about her and her work and her workshops by visiting StellaJohnson.com. And I'll be in Washington, D.C. in May and the beginning of June for the Focus on the Story Photographic Conference. The International Photo Festival will feature some of the world's best photojournalists and documentary photographers, as well as talks, photo walks, and workshops, of which I am teaching one. If you want to sign up for my workshop or just want to find out more about the event, visit focusonthestory.org. And remember to check out my YouTube channel where I discuss different aspects of photography by pulling images from listeners just like you who contribute to the Candid Frame Flickr Pool. You can check out the TCF Flickr Pool and our YouTube channel by clicking on the link in the show notes and the website. My new book, Making Photographs, Developing a Personal Visual Workflow, is now available. In it, I translate how to see and use light and shadow, line and shape, color and gesture to make great photographs. It's more than how to make a good picture, but how you can develop a personal and intimate way of seeing and documenting the world around you. You can order the book today. When you place your order from the Rocky Nook website, use the promo code PORELLO40 to receive 40% off the list price. Check out the website and the show notes for the link. And if you want to keep up with all things Candid Frame, sign up for our mailing list and you'll receive three free copies of my previously published ebooks. And if you like what you're hearing on the show, please take the time today to write a review in the iTunes store as it helps our ranking and creates greater awareness of the show. Thanks to Chris Hollington from the UK for his five-star review. You can support the show by making a monthly contribution through Patreon, or you can make a one-time contribution via PayPal. You'll find the links for both in the show notes and the website. Thanks to Eric Delorme, Ian Hunt, Florian Ziegler, Stephanie Banks, Susan Sadek, William Rice, Holger Engelhardt, 
and Summers Moore for their recent and generous contributions. I, I so appreciate it. And if you want to easily access every episode of The Candid Frame, download the free Candid Frame app. It's available for both Apple iOS and Android. Download it today. You'll find it where everything else is in the show notes or the website at thecandidframe.com. The Candid Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at the other martintaylor.com. The show's senior producer is Cynthia Parker, and our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at simply at ebodyandx. And this is ebodyandx, and this is The Candid Frame.